Welcome to the Sourdough Podcast. We are your hosts, Jay and Ashley. We're coming to you from our log cabin studio, formerly known as our living room, on our farm here in western Montana. And we are back. Hello, everybody. Uh, today, we're going to start off the episode with a couple different topics that have uh, been present in our lives these days, uh, as well as a little update on what we're the happenings on the farm. Um, but the first thing is this thought around success not being conditional upon stress. We all experience, I would say we have all experienced at some point in our lives where we, I think it's an aspect of being really hard on ourselves. And we feel like if we aren't stressed about what we are trying to do and accomplish, then we are not being successful. If things are all going smooth and well and we feel a little bit at ease in our lives, especially related to work and business and entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, (laughs) (laughs) Um, then it kind of brings up this feeling of like, oh my gosh, am I not working hard enough? Like, I don't feel stressed. Um, And so Jay had brought up this idea of success should not be conditional upon our level of stress. Absolutely, yeah. And when we approach situations in our past, at least for me, and I'm sure many other people can relate, um, we felt stress, but then we had some level of success. And so with operant conditioning, I would associate uh, my, I keep on saying this, but uh, success with the stress that I felt in that moment. And I'm like, oh, well, if I stress enough, then I'm going to be, you know, it's going to push me to be more successful or to be able to get that task done. But sometimes it can, you know, a, uh, an excessive amount of stress can actually paralyze somebody in their pursuit of uh, a venture or whatever and can actually cause more harm than good. So, mm-hmm basically for me, I've just been trying to level manage that level of stress down to a point where like, do I actually need to feel stressful about this situation right now? Or is it just under control and I just need to get it done? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think with both of us coming from entrepreneurial families, families that started businesses, at least for me growing up, watching my parents and watching my dad in particular, I would see him under constant stress, but also see him succeeding and see their business growing and developing and witness him not letting go of work after work. And so that became ingrained in me in a way. And I've had to do a lot of work to realize that I can let go of that mentality. I'm able to, us together, we're able to run our businesses, but also still take time for ourselves and work to actually alleviate that stress, like be conscious of it and choose to say, no, there's, there's no need to stress over this. We're going to get where we get today. And at the end of the day, if we don't finish this one task, it's not going to be a setback. Uh, so yeah, a little bit of, uh, I guess reconditioning from my own mind, um, from, based on my my past experiences of what running a business and being successful is like I I had seen it growing up as something that there's a lot of stress for there to be success Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great point because we often create or, or develop our behaviors based on the observations of our parents or guardians and those around us so if we're you know I was 
raised in a, uh, entrepreneurial family as well. And I did see that, um, in, in my parents a little bit. Um, yeah, it's definitely a, a good point. Mm-hmm. But so, so our lesson that we are hoping to pass forward to everyone is, especially if you're working on starting your own business or working on meeting some goal you've set in your own personal life to not see success as being conditional upon your level of stress. It's okay to not feel stress and it's okay to have days where you're like, wow, I'm caught up and I don't have a copious amount to do. It's okay. (laughs) Yeah. And savor those moments and actually take the time off to recharge that battery. Because when you're an entrepreneur and you're starting a business, it's just go, go, go. And as soon as you've put out one fire, you're just know that there's 15 lined up behind it and you have to get to that, that, uh, that perceivable or whatever proverbial finish line Mm -hmm. in order to succeed. But if you can just nail or, um, um, just what's the term? Um, just knock off all of those, those tasks. And you're in this position where you just don't have too much to do. Like right now for us, for example, this is why we're talking about is the farms in this kind of transition period between all of our spring crops. And we've already gotten all of our summer crops planted out and we're just kind of waiting to start harvesting and the inundation of produce is about to be hitting us in July, August and and September. But we have this period right now. We're like, well, like we're caught up. Like we don't need to stress out about finding another task, just like finding something to do to stress about and go ahead. Oh yeah. No, I'm just, just nodding my head and agreeing with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like take that time. If you have it, you know, savor it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, we're going to dive into, uh, let's start, start with the date. So today is June 20th. We are, we're actually going to check, um, yeah, is it is it the 21st this year? Yeah. yeah so th- tomorrow morning, actually, 8.57 a.m., June 21st will be summer solstice, mm-hmm. first day of summer. Um, and so we're emphasizing the date right now because last night or early this morning, we actually got hit with a frost yeah. here on the farm. And it's not unheard of. I think the farmer's almanac or almanac typically says like June whatever, 9th to 12th as the last frost date. But um, we find we never feel fully in the clear until, I don't know, July. Usually now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sometime <laughs> around now to early July and then start fearing the frost again mid to late August because we've also had frost then. But uh, so we're going to take a little bit of time to talk a bit about what we did as a small farm for some prevention of damage to our crops with anticipation that there could have been a frost last Mm -hmm. night, which there was. And I just want to take a step back and and, um, talk about another date. I think it was April 27th or 28th. That was the last frost that we had until last night. So that's like 50 days. Yeah of of frost free time and so we we planted early like we planted our summer crops a little early in late may because it was just looked like it was going to be a a spring where we just weren't going to have a frost mm-hmm. all the way until hopefully august or september yeah and, and then this morning we saw snow up in the mountains again <laughs> yep <laughs> um yeah so you know what we've talked about this before i think even in maybe the previous podcast 
but just what we do for early season growth and what we use for frost protection. Remember, we use like Agrabon or Remay. There's many word, many names for it. And there's actually different weights to this to this material. So you can get really, really thin, light material that has like, I think it's like 0.5 ounces per square yard or something ridiculous, all the way up to, you know, one to two ounces a, a square yard or square meter. Um, we're using uh, right now, I think Ag 19, I think that's the 0.55 ounces. So it's pretty light material. Um, regardless, we, we covered all of our stuff that was at risk of, of dying if we expose it to frost. So that's stuff like beans, uh, corn, squash, peppers, uh, melons. tomatillos, melons, eggplant, tomatoes, um, even even things like surprisingly enough, celery can certainly survive frost and has a decent ability to do so. But what can happen if you plant out celery too early in the springtime uh, and they get hit with with colder with some pretty cold days, um, they can actually it can send them into reproductive mode um, and they'll send out um, seeds in the first year or they'll go to bolt and mm. and see in the first year. So just be careful with certain crops like that. Um, when plant them early and make sure you cover them if there is going to be a frost we didn't necessarily need to do so because we didn't think it was gonna get that cold but one of our um, farm colleagues it got down to 30 degrees at his his place last night and so that's you know that's a hard frost mm-hmm. but plants so plants aren't they don't produce their own heat not unlike us where they're not endothermic and so they have figured out other ways to protect themselves from um, freezing temperatures and frost only exists because water is in the air and that's what what freezes you know things like nitrogen in the air and all of that other stuff um, their freezing points are re- probably going to be much lower I mean that's why we use liquid nitrogen for extremely cold uh, uh, applications mm-hmm. like cooling giant um, generators and even computers and stuff like that but plants can't can't do that they have a bunch of water of course in Mm -hmm. their uh in their bodies and so what happens is when the frost does hit that the the water that's in the cells so inside those cells freeze and so i'm sure you've had i don't know you put a a frozen bottle of water full and it bursts out out the cap um when you put it in 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 the fridge Mm -hmm. in the freezer or excuse me in the freezer yeah well same thing happens to plants and but there are certain plants that actually are capable of inhibiting that cell damage, that cell wall damage, um, and they produce various compounds. These are, again are brilliant chemists, and so they use sugars like fructose and sucrose. They even use uh, a family of oligosaccharides to inhibit to inhibit cell damage from frost hitting them. So they basically make their own antifreeze. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if that's even how we, we figured out how to produce antifreeze. I wonder. From, we'll have to look into the history yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started preparing for this potential frost a couple days ago. And what we did was we took, um, we have two different low tunnel type options that we use. One is just essentially bent wire uh, that we can do over a single row. Mm-hmm. And that's what we used for the beans, some corn that was just recently transplanted and a few other things. And so it just gives a little, little tunnel that you then put the fabric over top of. And we also, um, have 
the I don't know, I don't know what thickness that the the thicker gauge the conduit yeah, yeah yeah for our actual low tunnels that we have in place for more of the season yeah um and so those will cover two full rows together so it's the convenience of getting more covered um without with setting out less um hoops. materials yeah. less hoops mm-hmm. and so we got that all set up a couple of days ago we put fabric out next to them got all the sandbags in place so that we could get everything covered when we knew the temperatures were going to be dropping and really it just it's jay watching the weather very close and staying connected in the farming community is how we judge this yeah um and it's one thing to like wait and see what the weather does and feel the temperature drop, but it's best to watch the weather and be that way you have some time to prepare and you're not running around at 11 at night trying to cover and protect your crops. Yeah. And you should be, you know, if it's going to be cold that night, you should be even covering a little bit early, mm-hmm. you know, just as that's that sun is, you know, within the last hour or two of daylight, like you can cover even rows that have landscape fabric that black landscape fabric mm-hmm. you can cover those rows you know before sunset to just hold in that heat more yeah and this this frost protection it's not it's not just about holding that air in in that space it's also it's about uh, excuse me holding that heated air that's in that space it's also about holding that heat that's coming out of from the soil at mm-hmm. night and so when there's um cooler air and warmer soil there's going to be a heat um, what's the term heat transfer mm-hmm. from the soil into that air and it's going to warm that area that's around the plant and that's why we cover with agribon however there are situations where we just don't want to put hoops over something if we don't need to and just because it takes a long time yeah. to to go through a, a, even a half acre of of crops and cover them and so we just put the remay just right over the plant and it was so the remay was literally touching the leaves of the plant And this is an example of what we're about to say, an example of the difference between using the low tunnel systems versus just covering with with the remay Mm -hmm. and what can happen um, actually happened and was a great example. We have we'll have some pictures posted, hopefully, with this podcast. But um, so all the plants, all the melons, all the all the watermelons and squash that were underneath the low tunnel system with those hoops basically pushing or um, keeping that that remay away from the leaves um that did not all of those crops didn't get any suffered from any damage on the leaves however the same squash that did not have those hoops over them and the remay was touching those leaves those suffered damage on those leaves now we're not worried about it it is damage and it will slow down the plant a little bit but you have to check the apical meristem the growth node of the plant to make sure that that didn't get severely damaged so right in the middle right in the center right the yeah you can look for uh green fresh new growth yeah little tiny leaves that are just emerging and if that gets damaged and your all of your little axillary buds get damaged that crop might not make it and it'll die um fortunately with these lighter frosts it's not a big deal but with heavier frost especially if you're planting warm season crops quite a bit early you have to be very careful about how you what system you choose to protect your to protect these plants mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so the other thing we did um i'm our greenhouse crops 
there they of course have that level of protection from the greenhouse itself but we did try to get those closed up a little bit earlier try to hold in some of that heat unfortunately everything's already trellised and too big to even cover so that's just not an option we did notice a little little purpling on mm -hmm. top of some of the tomatoes in our um second greenhouse today and they could be just from the colder temperatures just a it little is. bit of shock but they will probably be just fine it slows them down though, mm -hmm. absolutely, especially tomatoes. They do not like being below 50 degrees. And in fact, ideal low, ideal minimum lows are above 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And you know, when, when these temperatures creep down towards you know, low 40s and 30s at night for these tomatoes, they do slow down and their growth rate is retarded, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Um, and just to mention, as far as those low tunnel systems, use a thicker gauge wire if you are going to be cutting and bending those. If you're using like, you know, anything over 14 to 16 gauge, it's going to be pretty thin and they won't just, it just won't hold its, its, um, its shape. We use, mm -hmm. I think it's nine or 10 gauge wire. Um, and we cut into sections that can actually who you know i think they're like five feet or long or something but then the low tunnel system that covers two two rows that's half inch emt electrical metal conduit and we just make a little jig you can find the videos online we're not going to do that but you can just make a little jig to bend your own hoops it's really easy learn what a radius is and and uh and get it done yeah and at some point too well if people are interested we can do up a little uh video or demo sure. of what these look like and how you can put one together, even just for an at-home garden. If you have just a whatever small, small square footage, it's still, you could really easily cover all your crops yeah. early season to give you a little, a little bit of extension, a little extra warmth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we're keeping most of our stuff even covered during the day, even though it's sunny out, just because the temperatures are so cold, it really helps them to continue growing quickly during this time of year especially if it's cooler. Mm -hmm. However, if the sun is really shining hard, even with the air temperature cooler, you'll want to open up the ends of the tunnels and let them vent just a little bit yep. uh, just to make sure nothing is overheating because it's surprising despite that fabric being um, permeable, if you will, mm -hmm. <laughs> air can move through it. It still gets significantly warmer mm -hmm. than the air temp when the sun's shining on it. It definitely does. Um, yeah. All right. Well, should we move forward to cooking? Absolutely. <laughs> so today we wanted to dive into a little uh, cooking series, if you will, about some of the crops that we're currently harvesting, things that you you should be able to find at your local farmer's market or our store, the sourdough right now. And um, we've been getting a lot of questions about three particular items, um, hawk rye salad turnips, kale and garlic scapes. So we're going to dive into each one of those and go over what they are, how to use them, give them all a good reputation. Yep. <laughs> and then we will, uh, yeah, share, share some recipes and, and ideas on what you can do with these. And this kind of stemmed from having multiple customers come into the cafe, customers at the farmer's market, our CSA members, reaching out to us about how much they're loving and appreciating all this fresh produce, but how they're feeling apprehensive or really uncertain about what to do with certain items that they've never cooked with before. And so this episode will hopefully provide some detailed info for our customers and any other listeners that uh, want to experiment with some crops, some produce that they maybe don't typically use. 
What's a hawkeye? <laughs> so, is it a radish? <laughs> is it a white beet? <laughs> <laughs> Neither. Neither. Um, so hawkeye salad turnips. I personally don't think they should be called turnips. They're way too delicious. Yeah. I've never been a fan of the classic turnips. The purple top ones. Yeah. 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 Just not my favorite flavor or texture. So. Well, and they have a tougher skin. You they to peel do. Them generally. Yeah. Hawkeye salad turnips. They're. They're great because you can literally just eat them like an apple. You don't need to peel them. They're delicious raw. In fact, I would go as far as saying they're maybe almost better raw. Um, they have a beautiful, crisp, mild flavor. Yep. And um, I always have a hard time describing the flavor to people. They're actually in the mustard family. So you do get that little bit of a mustard flavor, but they're not at all spicy. It is quite mild. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What else do you have to say about the the flavor of them? They're just they really aren't a radish, but they also really aren't a turnip. They're kind of somewhere in between. Well, it's like it's not astringent at all, like an apple, like an apple skin. Mm-hmm. When you bite into it, you don't get that like um, kind of dry taste in your mouth. It's very still, like it's a very sweet, juicy uh, um, crop. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think what else. It's about it, really. Yeah. The, yeah. the greens are edible. So. Yeah. So since they're in the mustard family, the greens actually, when harvested fresh, mm-hmm. the greens uh, make an awesome addition to stir fry or soup. And we'll talk a bit more about how to use all greens. Um, but with hakari, our personal preference, we'll slice them thin, put them in salads. We will spiralize them when we're feeling fancy and drop them into soup or homemade ramen. And it just adds a really nice texture and flavor. Uh, Because they don't have to be cooked, you can add them in near the end and you get a crispy texture. It Mm -hmm. almost like fools you as kind of like fake spaghetti sort of thing. (laughs) Um, And then adding in those greens chopped up at the very end just so they're ever so slightly wilted in either your saute or your soup is a really nice addition for flavor too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some other ways that you can use hakari um, in addition to those is we've chopped them up into chunks and put them in stew. So kind of making more of a heartier meal with them. And then we've also just had them where they've been cut in half And most of the greens cut off and then just grilled. On hot. Yeah. Very hot. Yeah. So you get like a little bit of a char with that oil, maybe sprinkle a little sea salt on top, but it's, they're very versatile. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would highly recommend if you haven't tried the Hakurai salad turnips, find some next weekend at your local market and they're just, they're, they're well worth it. They're Mm. delicious. They're nutritious. uh, And you can really do a lot with them yeah you know they're the another name for them is called tokyo turnip and they were bred in japan post-world war ii i mean turnips have been in japan for probably over a millennia now um because there's a a wide variety of them but for the hakurai specifically they were actually bred uh post-world war ii kind of when japan was really facing a famine and and they come to maturity a full month before most other turnips and so it's a really quick growing crop um, you can sell them for, for good money at the farmer's market. Um, you have quick turnover in the field, especially if you use them for all the farmers out there using a paper pot transplanter. We do two seeds per cell uh, with a four-inch spacing, and it's just perfectly consistent size mm-hmm. turnips every single time. 
And yeah, it's a really great crop to have in your rotation, Mm -hmm. especially if you're looking ahead in a a month or two out or a month out. You're like, ooh, what am I going to have around that time? I better plant some some Hakurai and do it because you will love it. However, we maybe quickly could talk about pests of the Hakurai. I was actually going to ask you to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah, Because I think that's an important point Um, outside the cooking world here. It's, I do think, talking about whether it's your at-home garden or uh, if you're wanting to make money off the produce you're growing, it's really important to think about pest management Mm -hmm. with this crop in particular. Yeah. So out east, uh, where I learned to farm, we didn't cover our turnips because... we didn't necessarily need to. We had a season of some root fly maggots that would kind of bore into the actual root of the plant and cause basically just giant holes that are rotting. Um, but we didn't have any really much flea beetle infestations mm-hmm. out there, so we never covered them. And then I, I learned the hard way out here when I planted them that everything wants to eat them out here. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got you know a wide variety of caterpillars. You've got root fly, various root fly maggots. You have flea beetles, you have voles, what else? What do those mealworms come from? Mealworms, those come from like a, a beetle. Okay. And yeah, it's kind of an extended nasty abdomen. Things. Yeah, super nasty. They're, if you ever find them, they're kind of this what, beige tan color. Yeah, maybe green, maybe yellow, who knows? Yeah, it's, I think it's like tan color. It's like a nasty it, little worm. <laughs> yeah, you can actually buy mealworms at your local um like a ranch supply store for feeding chickens or geckos or lizards or whatever um but anyway so yeah we use in in the spring and fall even though they're a bit resistant to frost we still cover them and so we use agribond to protect them from the frost but also from the insects Mm -hmm. and as soon as it gets too hot out we switch to insect netting sometimes we even put insect netting underneath the agribond so we can just quickly undo it Mm And you have to have these out in the Pacific Northwest or else you just won't get any crops. I mean, you might, but they'll be pretty gross. Yeah, I remember. I can't remember who was last season or the one prior. Uh, but we had almost an entire 50-foot row that was almost all just compost because they were so decimated from pests. Mm-hmm. Like almost every single one we would pull up had multiple holes, a little wormies like, crawling out yeah, of Yeah, wiggling it. out of the side, half yeah. in the turn up. And people don't like seeing that, even if it's organic produce. It's it's pretty gross. Yeah. Um, and so the other thing that we do is rotate the yes. location that these are in. We never plant two back-to-back nope. successions of salad turnips. And that's because it gives the soil some time, if any, of those pests remain in the soil planting a different crop that is not susceptible to those same pests will allow that soil to remediate itself a little and the next crop will hopefully not get that same pest yeah and that even it's not even just um succeeding hawkeye with hawkeye in the same row it's also really any type of mustard Mm, Um, yeah anything Anything in the the family yeah yeah Yeah, that makes sense sure um but anyways so move on to kale yeah yeah so up next kale (laughs) yeah it had a resurgence (laughs) a few years back yeah it's an interesting one it really it it seems to go in phases people are all about the kale and then no one wants the kale and as small farmers it's been really difficult to decide how much to grow and in fact there's a point in time that we're like oh we're just not going to grow any because it's not selling yeah um, however, at the cafe, our kale Caesar salad became extremely popular. In fact, so popular 
that when we switched it to our beautiful lettuce mix, <laughs> n- people didn't want it. They're nope. like, but where's the kale? <laughs> and so needless to say, we're growing a lot of kale. Um, and most of it is just for the restaurant and food production in our cafe. But we do still bring some to the farmer's market, but we don't sell copious amounts. And no. that's okay. We're just figuring out what those markets are. But we're hoping maybe in sharing some tips and tricks for using kale and getting the best flavor, best texture out of it, maybe more people will be inclined to give it a go. Yeah. Um, seems to be one of those love or hate it, love it or hate it kind of items. Yeah. People either rave about it or they're like, absolutely not. Do not put that on my plate. Um, do you have something to add in? Well, so one of the bad raps I think that kale gets is it can be, it, it's not sweet sometimes, mm. right? So when you're in peak summer or even say you harvest um, in the afternoon or evening after a hot day, um, that plant is not going to be as sweet. Those leaves are not going to be as sweet as if you were to harvest it, harvest it after a cool morning mm-hmm. or in the spring or fall. Yeah. And, you know, so remember those plants that can produce those sugars to protect themselves from frost. Well, as, as uh, the temperature starts to creep towards freezing, you know, between say 30 and 45 degrees, the plant's kind of getting ready. It's acclimating itself, getting ready for when that frost does hit. Cause if that frost all of a sudden hits and it doesn't have those sugars, you know, distri- the soluble sugars distributed around its entire uh, entire body, uh, it's going to suffer from damage. In mm-hmm. fact, sometimes if you don't harden off your plants before transplanting them out into the field, you can get frost damage on your recently transplanted crops that are cold tolerant, for example, kale. And hardening off just means like exposing it to systematically lower temperatures before you transplant out to the field where it's going to be mm-hmm. for a while. And what that looks like for us is usually taking our trays of starts outside for a period of time each day when the weather is okay, yeah. you know, not super windy, not snowing, not pouring <laughs> rain, but just like neutral conditions, but colder temps. And so mm. we'll condition them by taking them out for a little bit each day over a period of sometimes a week mm-hmm. before we actually uh, transplant them out into yeah. their final location. Yeah, you can become so good at growing that you forget that plants actually do want to be stressed a bit, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're transi- transitioning them to different places. Yeah, because they're they they are a in place organism. They don't, for the most part, move around. Yeah. Um, well, but yeah, recipes. Yeah, well, and so that kale I harvested first thing this morning for the cafe is going to be sweet. Yes, it'll be sweet and delicious. Yeah. Since we had that nice little frost <laughs> last <laughs> night. It's great. Um. So. First of all, we'll talk a little bit about salads because, like I said, our kale salads become very popular. And I think for myself personally, kale salads is are just one of my favorite use for kale, whether it's the curly or the lacinato, also known as dinosaur kale. Yep. It's those beautiful, long, um, I don't know, less scaly avoid. sort of leaves. Yeah, less yeah. avoid, so not like super frilly. Yeah. Um, but one important thing, and I think this is perhaps the turnoff for people is kale is very tough, very tough. There's a lot of fiber in it, which is great for us, but you also need to make sure you're breaking that down a little bit before you consume it. Mm -hmm. And all that, all you need to do is really massage. Yeah. Massage that kale. And so basically with any salad we make with kale, we 
like doing a fine kind of confetti style chop yeah. on it. It creates a really nice texture. You can also just tear it up though into larger pieces if that's your preference. Mm-hmm. Regardless, once you have it all prepared and in your bowl, adding a little bit of the salad dressing that you'll be using. Or, or all of it. Yeah, or, or all yeah. of it, um, depending on what you're going to be preparing. And just massaging that dressing into the kale or even olive oil or lemon, whatever you're going to be cooking with or preparing with it. Um, But massaging it in and letting it sit for a little bit before you consume it really helps to soften those leaves and help break down that super tough feeling. And it makes it a really pleasant salad. And because it's a heartier green, it actually holds up longer too than if you were to use just like um regular lettuce or even spinach for that matter or arugula salad's not great leftover yeah but yeah. not kale yeah yeah sometimes i almost prefer kale a kale salad the next day because it really takes in the flavors of the dressing yeah. um and yeah it's just it's super nutritious it's high in fiber high in vitamins and uh yeah well, so uh, you spoke about the confetti style mm, of cutting. Yeah. So how you do this is you, of course, you wash all of your kale if you want to, but then you know you'll, you'll cut off the stems at least to the base of the the leaf, um, and then you put it, all of the leaves stack on top of each other, mm-hmm. flat out on a cutting board, and then as if like you're rolling sushi, you start rolling that kale into like a sushi roll and use the biggest leaf on the bottom. So that you can actually get a nice tight mm-hmm. log. To hold, it, hold the others in place. Yeah. And then, you know, with your, your knife, do really thin slices, like, you know, an eighth to a quarter of an inch mm-hmm. thick and just keep on going down that log and you'll get this kind of, it'll burst out and you'll get this confetti style. And it's really great. It increases the surface area of the the salt and the vinegars that are likely in your dressings. And those are the things that are going to be rupturing cell walls and pulling the moisture a bit out of that kale to soften it. It's, you know, it's the osmotic pressure between that. And when you put salt on it, it's just like fermenting. That's how you wilt and pull moisture out of the, out of the plants. And that is what softens it. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. 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 And uh, I, I love kale in salads. Like even just, <laughs> I, love I just love kale, you guys. <laughs> um, but it's a great addition to, any sort of like, I guess, bulkier or fancier salad. Mm-hmm. So something that you're maybe adding nuts and seeds to and or quinoa or some other grain. It's just, um, yeah, it's it's a really nice addition. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, it's also great in soup. So what is it called? Like um, zup, zuppa or like Tuscan kale soup or something um, with like sausage, yeah. potatoes, kale um trying to think what else is in there yeah i'm trying to think of i know Cream, i know the usually. word you're looking for that starts with a z but i can't uh yeah. it's not coming to me right now but yeah that's a great point too and so um adding in those greens near the end of your boiling process mm-hmm. is a great way to incorporate some fresh greens yeah. into your meal without having to have super wilty soggy spinach in your soup yeah and so that's maybe we should talk about how to actually cook greens yeah why don't we do that and then i'll hop back into a couple couple other kale 
tips and tricks that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, that sounds good. Are you going? Go ahead. Okay, sure. So, you know, kale's really, it's structural. It holds its integrity really well. And so it can be used in, in soups and um, even it actually lasts in soups for days, mm-hmm. just like it would in a salad. But some some greens just aren't meant to even be cooked. But if you are going to be cooked, that if you are going to be wilting them or cooking them, it's really just right at the end of the recipe, like right before serving. So usually for us, like, for example, if we're going to be putting spinach into, I don't know, a soup or whatever, we would just chop it up and put it on top of the soup mm-hmm. and just mix it with our spoon in right right before serving it to ourselves yeah and we would only put it into our personal bowls not into the entire batch and stir it and that way if you have leftovers you can store it in the fridge and then do the same thing again the next time you heat it up add your spinach fresh on top because that would go it's gross super duper wilty and it's it's a nasty texture Mm -hmm. don't cook lettuce and it's just not meant to be cooked (laughs) (laughs) yeah even yeah. even on a sandwich that you're grilling, um, I always recommend grilling it and then opening it back up and putting your fresh greens in. Uh, but lettuce, it just it doesn't it doesn't handle the heat well, so no. those cell walls break down really really fast, yeah. and you end up with kind of a brown piece of mush. Yeah, it's not and it's not even palatable for me. It doesn't taste good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are going to be sautéing greens again, just like in soup, it's just right at the end of the the meal. You know, some of the stems of those greens, if you're chopping those up, those go in before the actual green part of the the leaf. Um, You just kind of have to play it out. Like what is is going to maintain integrity for longer with heat and what is just not going to maintain its integrity with any heat. And so like the stems, again, Mm -hmm. we put them in right before we put in the greens or the the leaf part. But, you know, you don't want to be cooking greens for more than like, 20 seconds yeah <laughs> 30 yeah. seconds like if you're sauteing greens and you're just keep on mixing for five minutes on high like those greens are just going to be mushed by the end and and it's not going to be very palatable for us if we ever are wilting spinach we are say we're cooking onions and garlic and then have a bunch of olive oil and stuff there and then we toss in the spinach and it's on high heat for 10 seconds and then we turn it off mm-hmm. and then so keep on mixing it around and it'll wilt down quite a bit but we're not burning it it's basically when we're about ready to eat it yeah so it's not going to sit there for long no um yeah so i guess the general rule of thumb put those greens in at the very end so that you're not ruining the integrity of the texture Mm -hmm. and it'll be a much more enjoyable experience to eat them (laughs) and uh, i think it'll help with the reputation of those poor hearty greens yeah but um on the note of sauteing so one of our favorite things to do with kale is actually a breakfast dish or at least one of my favorite things uh, and it's a chickpea kale scramble and so with that we do saute the kale uh, for a little bit longer, mm-hmm. but because it is so thick and coarse, if that's the right word, yeah. uh, it can so hardy. Yeah, it can handle a little bit longer on the heat. And so for that, we just put some coconut oil in a pot and I actually cover it. So it sort of steams at the same time. And I don't massage it since we're not eating it raw. And so that combination of the hot coconut oil and the steam in the pot just makes the leaves break down just enough that you get a nice soft texture, but still the full flavor of the kale in combination with your mashed chickpea scramble. And it's delicious. Yeah. And there's nutritional yeast in it as well. Mm -hmm. And you can add. 
Yeah, garlic we, for sure. We usually do some garlic, a little bit of red onion, paprika, lemon. I'll maybe share this recipe if I feel kind enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a great protein-rich breakfast full of fiber, good way to start your day. And because we're not vegans, we also put eggs on top, sometimes avocados and salsa, mm-hmm. and maybe even some bacon if we're feeling feeling a little extra hungry. Yeah. Um, so the last, the last kale item I wanted to touch on, this is an awesome one. And I think it's become a little more popular over the past, past few years, it, but making kale chips. So if you have some kale that you just don't know what to do with, or maybe it's been in the fridge for a couple of days and you want to use it up before it goes bad, kale chips are an awesome way to use it and are a really delicious snack. They really are. We've also used kale chips, uh, as toppings on, a variety of dishes. I'm trying to remember what we had made some for most recently, but anyway, it, it adds a nice crunchy texture so you can use them on top of like a regular salad, um, or just eat them as a snack. And basically it's a super simple process. You just need to take your kale, cut it into large chunks because you're going to be baking this in the oven. You don't want the pieces to be too tiny because they do shrivel up. And so I'm going to post a video on Instagram that will go over the process of making kale chips at home. And I hope that you guys will try it out and let me know what you think. But in short, you cut up the kale, toss in a little bit of olive oil, sea salt, nutritional yeast. And I like to add a little garlic powder or chili or paprika for a little extra flavor. And then you lay them out on your baking sheet. Giving space. Yes. Yeah. Make sure there's space between each one. Otherwise, they won't really get crispy. And you'll kind of just have soggy kale <laughs> with some flavor. <laughs> mm. um, so spread them out so that they're not touching. And you bake them in the oven at 300, 325 for, depending on the thickness of your kale, anywhere from 15 to 20 minutes. And then they get nice and crispy. You can store them for multiple days in a bag or container. And it's an awesome, nutritious snack to take out and about with you. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, should we talk about scapes? Yes. Garlic scapes. Tis the season. Tis the season. That's yeah. for sure. So we are flushed with garlic scapes <laughs> right now. Yep. And uh, people are excited. They are. At the farmer's market this weekend, we had... A lot of fun sharing with some of our customers what scapes are and explaining that that process where they come from what's happening with the garlic and so uh we thought we would share that with everyone else today as well yeah well we've been we've been waiting for we've been waiting for this moment since october since we planted garlic and we're now reaching the 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 last quarter of its its uh its life really uh not as of his life but as far as our cropping of it we're going to be harvesting the garlic sometime in mid to late july and um what's happening right now is the the garlic are what the scape is is basically a flower stalk and so it comes out of the top of the plant and it kind of pigtails it looks like a little curly cue coming off of it and you know if you want you can let those flower and there's certainly interesting flowers and an interesting way of the, the garlic reproducing. That's how it shares genetics and, and increases genetic diversity amongst the plants. But garlic also has an ability to propagate uh, or reproduce, essentially clone itself underneath the ground. And that's why we get a bulb of garlic. How we, how we propagate garlic is we 
take that ball, we split it apart. We keep the largest cloves, which is, you know, five or five to 10 cloves make up a bulb. And then we plant that. And then the next year, that's going to turn into a bulb. And so it's, you're not changing. I don't think you're changing any of the genetic diversity of that individual plant, but that is one way that the the plant has an ability to continue itself down, down the generation or Mm -hmm. down the years. Um, But we don't want that as far as, uh, we don't want the flower to flower and actually pollinate because we want the biggest garlic bulbs down below ground. And so basically when you tear off that one flower that the garlic, pr- the garlic produces one mm-hmm. flower and we snap off the top of that garlic uh, flower or excuse me, the skate. Um, and that then kind of redirects the energy back down into the um you know, expanding ballooning bulb that's underneath the ground right now. Mm-hmm. It hasn't really differentiated. We, we pulled a couple up. It hasn't differentiated yet into individual cloves, but that's what this last month is all about for the garlic. And that's where we're going to be cropping is in about a month. Um, and so that's basically what escape is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So the scape would otherwise become a flower, but instead we get to use them uh, in our cooking. Yeah. Which is awesome because they're delicious and you can basically use them in place of garlic, garlic <laughs> onion. Yeah. Um, really anywhere that you would otherwise use garlic, you can straight up use the scapes in place. They have a potent garlic flavor. They're quite potent. Mm-hmm. They're very pretty intense. Yeah. And so we will chop them up and add them into a breakfast scramble. So cooking them. And then mixing them in with our eggs. The other night, we tossed the entire scape on the grill and barbecued it, charred it, and then chopped it up and added it into our kale Caesar salad. That's right. That was delicious. (laughs) It was fantastic. And our other favorite with garlic scapes is pesto. So it's, it's super simple. It's a great way to preserve them also if you'd like to have that flavor through the winter season. And it's... Pesto is pretty, pretty forgiving. Um, so basically just pureeing the garlic scapes with some oil. We like to use organic olive oil and adding in some sort of nut, some sort of cheese. Basil is an awesome addition for garlic scape pesto mm-hmm. if you have it in season. And but then you don't a- need to have. No, you don't even need it. Yeah. Uh, and then some sort of citrus. Mm-hmm. And citrus? Yeah, a little yeah. bit of citrus. And okay. I, and typically in our pestos, well, uh, maybe I'm just making things up. Yeah, I was wondering if we added. I mean, that'd be, I could see that being nice, but you don't also, you don't need to put in any, you know, if the pesto calls for garlic as well mm-hmm. and you're using scapes in replacement of the green that you're putting into the pesto, you don't need to add more garlic. Yeah, it's absolutely. already going to be very potent. Yeah. I mean, you could if you want it, but it's definitely not yeah. necessary. No, you're just wasting And money. I think maybe I was thinking, maybe I was thinking of citrus just to help preserve that color oh, a okay. little bit, but yeah. Doesn't the oil do that though? But yeah, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just making things <laughs> up. Um, anyway, there's millions of recipes online. So just look up. Scape. How about it? Scape pesto mm-hmm. there's some with i've seen some with sunflower seeds which i think we did last year it was really nice um classics are just using pine nuts like in basic pesto mm-hmm. um yeah experiment you can you can pickle them fermenting them is a little interesting because of the compounds that are in them they can get a little slimy 
Mm. Um, but we love to pickle them as well, if you so choose. They make, well, great pickles. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to think of anything else and how we use them. Really just keep in mind that you can use them wherever you would use garlic. So pureeing it into a salad dressing, yep. adding it into stir fries. Mm-hmm. Um, putting it, probably stuffing a bunch in a chicken. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or putting them whole, just like putting the whole scape in with a roasted chicken just mm-hmm. to add that flavor. And then you could probably eat those at the end mm-hmm. and they would be absolutely delicious. Yum. Yeah. I'm getting um, actually pretty hungry. Yeah, me too. Well, uh, I think that's really what we wanted to cover today in terms of a couple of our current favorite items that we're harvesting from the farm. And hopefully this will give our listeners some motivation and incentive to try out some of these items that they maybe don't typically eat or at the very least ha- um, give you some new ideas on what you can do with these particular vegetables let's hope so all right well until next time thanks for listening everyone please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends and family it really just takes a couple of seconds you can also leave us a review we appreciate all forms of feedback certainly helps us to keep our egos in check And if you appreciate our work and want to help us succeed, please consider contributing financially. You can do this by visiting patreon.com backslash the sourdough. That's patreon.com backslash the sourdoe. You can also follow us on Instagram at sourdough.mt.